Scripture this morning is Romans chapter 11, starting down in verse 25. It figures, I brought my Bible, not a pew Bible. page 1122 if you've got a pew bible i do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery brothers so that you may not be conceited israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of gentiles has come in and so all israel will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come from zion He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's pray. Gracious God and King, we thank you that you have left a revelation of yourself. God, we thank you that we are not left alone in the world trying to figure out who you are and what you would have of us. We pray, Father God, that you, every time we open up your word, every single time, whether it's here, whether it's listening to uh, the Bible on CD in the car, whether it is having quiet time, God, during our lunch break or between classes or in the morning, I pray that you would speak to us. Pray, Father God, that you, when every time we open up your word, God, that we would hear your voice. Lord, and I pray that you would work in us, God, the capacity to, to understand you, to love you, to know you. God, I think of all the programs that go on in this church. I think of the kids that are going to be you know, downstairs in the next hour, all those beautiful children there, Lord, in those Sunday school classes. I think of the kids in our preschool that are going to be coming in very shortly, Lord, Monday through Friday in that preschool over there. And I pray, God, that each and every one of these kids, God, would come to know you, that they'd come to find life in you, that they'd come to trust you, God. Same thing, that as they hear your word taught, God, that it would not simply be a story, but it would be the true story to them. God, that you would penetrate their hearts through it, that even at a young age you would capture them with a sense of awe and wonder at who you are and what you have done, and that they would find their hope and their trust and their life in you, Jesus. Pray for them and we pray for us now. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you have watched sports for any length of time, you have seen that in sports exists controversy. You know, you're there, you're watching a baseball game, and the batter gets up, and he, he hits a liner right down the left field line, and, and it's sailing, and it's unclear where it lands. And, you know, all of a sudden, you, you got all the, the umpires, they're huddling on the mound, you know, and, and everyone in the stands and at home is arguing, was it to the left of the line, to the right of the line? Did they see that small speck of white powder shoot up? You know, uh, the, the, the player, he's at first base, he takes off, runs down the line, catcher stands up, hurls the ball towards second plate, but did his arm get in time and touch the bag before the second baseman sweeped across with the glove? And in our day and age with instant replay and TiVo, you know, we're watching it again and again and again. And it's amazing that, you know, in the sports world, even with all of the technology we have and with instant replay, we can still find people that, that disagree with each other about whether he was safe or not, about whether the ball was in bounds or out of bounds. Um... 
And the same way this morning, we reach yet another text within the Word of God that has, especially in the last 60 years, created a great degree of controversy and and disagreement within faithful followers of Jesus Christ, within the church. You know, we have a text this morning that, like some other texts in Scripture, generates a lot of debate, sometimes a lot of emotion. Because it is a, it's a difficult text to understand. And it's this weird thing that, you know, if you've been in Christ for a while, you know, even within the, the unified body of Christ, even as we study God's written inspired word, there are sometimes certain texts that divide faithful followers of Jesus Christ and that we disagree on. And sometimes that's confusing because, you know, we come to the Bible and we say, well, well, God inspired this word and he did. This is the inspired word of God. God inspired it. God ensures that it is true and that it is trustworthy and that there is no error or falsehood within it. And yet, sometimes good Christians can disagree over certain doctrines. And, and, and we see, if, and we're not going to have time to talk about it this morning entirely, but we see reasons given in the Bible why we could misunderstand Scripture. And, and yet, even in the midst of, as we look at Scripture, we say, wow, sometimes this verse is not clear. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to strive for clarity. You know, in Deuteronomy 29, it says, the hidden things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us. Hidden things belong to the Lord, the revealed things belong to us. And so, it's one of these things where we, you know, we come to Scripture, and we come out of a text like this morning that we can disagree about. And sometimes it's easy to say, well, wow, well, because we, you know, Christians disagree, we can either say, maybe that's a problem with the Bible, which it's not. Or we can say, well, maybe it's not that important, which it's not. <laughs> we have to say, because it's the revealed thing to us. And sometimes in the midst of the revealed thing, we need to really... Gosh, we need to do our homework. We need to try to figure it out. This morning's a text I have not entirely figured out. Um, and yet, hopefully, we can strive to do that here together. It's an interesting text because for much of the history of the church, this text was largely not talked about. Verses 25 to 27, which is kind of funny. In my own study, I can tell you, since 1948, in the last 60 years, this is a verse that commentators talk about a lot. And yet, it's kind of ironic that when you read a lot of commentaries before 1948, people don't talk about it a whole lot. It's summed up in a couple, in three sentences instead of 20 pages, which is kind of interesting. Charles Spurgeon's a perfect example. I mean, he had thousands of sermons preached by the time he died. Charles Spurgeon, in the book of Romans, he preached 10 sermons on Romans chapter 5. 10 more on Romans chapter 6. He preached 31 sermons on Romans chapter 8. Half a year in Romans 8. I mean, it's a good chapter, but half a year. <laughs> he preached 16 sermons on Romans 10. How many sermons you preached? you think he preached on all of chapter 11? One. One sermon. And that's kind of representative of, of the era. Outside of the Puritans, people, they just didn't spend time talking about this verse the way we do. We who live with the nation of Israel on our news or in our broadcasts on a daily basis, we tune in, I think, to this verse in a way that that other people did not, which is interesting. And it creates controversy, this text, because it is confusing. Martin Luther, I think, was right when he opined, quote, it is true that this passage is so obscure that hardly anyone will be persuaded with absolute clarity. 
Now, if you know Martin Luther, Martin Luther is a guy that has absolute clarity on a lot of things. <laughs> For better or for worse. He was not a person afraid of stating his convictions. And yet here he looks at this verse and he says, Gosh, this is going to just divide and it's going to be hard to understand. Because it's a hard text. But thankfully, even though this text is difficult, as I think we're going to try to tease out, the application of this text is not. And that's what's ironic about it. The, even though the doctrine related to this text can be confusing, the application that, that springs forth from it, regardless of what the doctrine really is exactly is the same in each and every case and so we're gonna do some little fun i think this morning we're gonna kind of walk through uh i think the four primary interpretive options for this text and as we do that i'm going to kind of tease out because you know even when, when sometimes when christians disagree sometimes they can disagree about a text and and, and they have two different they have different arguments right and admittedly sometimes there's really good arguments on either side sometimes we, people can have arguments, and some of those arguments are more logically consistent and better reasoned out than others. And so as we walk through kind of the four major interpretive options, um, we're going to kind of see, we'll, we'll do a little basic Bible study, how to study the Bible techniques as we do this, so we can learn how to, how to fish and not just how to, uh, not just be given a fish. So I just want to preface this by saying, I do not have this text figured out as much as I would like. So here we go. Romans 11.25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. ESV says so that you may not be um, great in your own sight, so that you might not be prideful. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. There's a couple of questions you might be asking right there. Especially, that's the line. All Israel will be saved. People look at them and say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that every ethnic descendant of, of Abraham is going to be saved? Is that what, what Paul is saying? He says, all, you know, like every ethnic descendant of Abraham throughout the history, you know, for the last 3,500 years, every, every Jew is going to be saved. Is that what it means? It, does it mean that every Jew that's alive when Jesus returns, is going to be saved. Is that what it means? Does Paul, when he says Israel here, not even mean Israel as we often think of it? Does he, does he mean, you know, in, in, like he does in Romans 9, 6, he, he breaks Israel down into two categories. He says, not all Israel are true Israel. And he says, you know, he says, you know, just because they're ethnic Israel doesn't mean that they're, they're really Israel. They're not the elective Israel. He makes this distinction. Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about Jews and Gentiles together? What does Paul mean? Is he talking about the people of God or the nation of Israel? These are questions that you, you might ask if you're really kind of, because, you know, sometimes we, we read the scriptures here and, sometimes, you know, if you do this, you, know, you pick up all and we just keep going, verse, 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 verse. And, and we don't really say, well, what, what does he mean by that term? Does he mean what I, what I mean? When he says this word, is, he the, does, 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 is this the word what Paul means in this case? Or is this how I use this word? A lot of time has passed, you know, since uh, the book of Romans in particular was written. 2,000 years. We use language a little bit differently sometimes. We, we, we can't assume. We're going to do, you know, look at, look at the context. We have to do our homework. First thing I want you to see before we go over these options is that Paul here in this text is not talking about a future for the nation of Israel. 
It's not what he's talking about here. You, 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 you may want to make that argument from a different text in Scripture that Paul is talking about a future for the nation of Israel, but that's clearly not what he's doing here. Here he's not talking about Israel as a nation state. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about a deliverer coming from Zion. He's talking about people being saved from their sins by Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he's talking about. This is a salvation text, not a, not a nation text. Again, if you want to make that case... You'd have to go somewhere else other than Romans eleven twenty five to 27. So let's look at some of these options. Option number one. All Israelites throughout all of history will be saved. It's probably the position which has the smallest following, as I can understand it. But it's a position a few people have. It, it originated from a uh, Harvard professor in the 19th century, actually. That all of Israel throughout all of time, every single ethnic Jew will be saved. So think about that for a minute. That would be saying that every, every, every ethnic Jew, regardless of what they did with Jesus, or regardless of what they did with God in the Old Testament, would ultimately be saved. That would be saying that Judas, who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and of whom Jesus said it would be better for him if he wasn't born, that he would be saved. That would be saying that Korah, who committed this rebellion in the Old Testament against the God, got God so riled up, right, that God caused the ground to open up underneath Korah so that he fell down into the ground in some kind of an earthquake that, that he, in the end, would be saved. That would be saying that Ahab, who, what, killed the prophets of God as money as he could, and who worshipped Baal, the Canaanite storm god, that he, in the end, would be saved. That's a hard implication of this view. It's a hard implication. And yet, the funny thing is, that's not a reason not to agree with this view. Because, you know, there's a difference between, here's a basic Bible study technique. When we read Scripture, like, you know, there's times we read things and we say, gosh, if this is true, I don't know that I like this implication. And there's a difference between thinking, uh, understanding, there's a difference between disagreeing with the text because of the implication we see or because of the exegesis. There's times we can read the Word of God and we can say, if I don't know that I believe this interpretation because I don't like this, this, uh, the implication it would then have. You know, so for example, someone might say, well, you know, today the church is divided over male and female roles within the church and whether women can be pastors or not. And so, you know, I, I, so, some people may say, well, I don't like this view that women, you know, shouldn't be pastors because that means that the church is a chauvinist institution. And so, and so you see what's happening is that a person is saying, I don't like the implication of that interpretation, therefore I don't think it's correct. And that's actually not a good reason to, to, to make or break your interpretation of the text. The right way to do is to say, is this the right interpretation? Does this make sense within the context? Does this appear to be the author's intended meaning? Is there another or perhaps a better way to understand this text within its context, within its verse, within its chapter, within its book, within its canon? You know, is there a better way to understand this text? Do you see the difference? It's a difference. I, I think there, there's another way we can, we can understand the other than thinking that every Jew throughout all of history would be saved. And this is going to sound scandalous. He says what? All Israel will be saved. All in Scripture does not always mean all as we define it. 
Sometimes I think on the surface we read this verse and we say, well, it says all Israel will be saved. That must mean every single Jew throughout history. And sometimes the word all in Scripture doesn't mean all in that way. Let me give you two examples. Joshua 7.25. And Joshua said to Achan, why did you bring trouble upon us? Why did... The Lord is bringing trouble on you today, and, is, and all Israel stoned him with stones. All right, to this point, so you know, um, Achan commits this sin. He is confronted by the, by, by the leaders of the nation of Israel, and it says what? They all stoned him with stones. At this point in time, most scholars want to say, you know, there's th- hundreds of thousands, if not a few million Jews there. Do we really think, when it says all, do we really think that, say, one million people, 80 to 8 months old, picked up a stone and stoned Achan? Probably not. It's an expression. It's an idiom. You know, to, to, what, to say a representative number. It, it's speaking corporately. You know, yeah, all of them, you know, is like this mob. You know, so, not just one guy, two guys. This great mob of, you know, Israelites came out and stoned him. You see it again. Um, same idea. Second Samuel sixteen twenty two, And they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into the concubines of his father before the eyes of all Israel. So, is he really trying to say that every Jew in the nation of Israel saw Absalom sleeping with David's concubines? I don't think so. I don't think people in the city 30 miles away from Jerusalem were like, do you see that? No. Even everyone within the city of Jerusalem wouldn't be able to see what was happening. It's, it's an expression. You know, the Bible, and, and let me be clear, the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is faithful and trustworthy and true. It is a divine book, but it's also a human book. And it's not a wooden book. It uses human expressions, human idioms, human genres. You know, when, and we use this, when we tell someone, go break a leg. We don't really mean, I hope you break your leg before you get up and, you know, for the Romeo and Juliet performance. We don't mean that. And yet if someone just read it and they said, I'm going to take this, Entirely, they say, I guess they're telling that person to break a leg. They must not like them. And we'd say, no, we're trying to encourage them. You know, and this is the way that the Bible is very different than the Quran. You know, in, in the case of the Quran, you know, Muslims believe that Muhammad had no involvement in the creative process. That everything was dictated, called dictation theory. He was just told, write this, 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 this. And it wasn't as if he was kind of thinking about it. Now, this is different than how the inspired Word of God was written. You know, we we believe that the Bible was what? God, through His Holy Spirit, inspired men so that everything they wrote was trustworthy and true. And they communicated everything He wanted to have communicated faithfully. But that that He worked through their creative process. So when David is sitting in the... uh, underneath a tree and he says, The Lord is my shepherd... David's really feeling that. It's not just like God is saying, tell them that I'm your shepherd. That's what I want them to know. No, like David is really feeling, God is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He's fully believing that, experiencing that. God is guiding that. But, but David's involved, you see? And, and so, you know, we, the Bible is not a wooden book. 
And so, you know, we need to look and say, wow, when I'm reading something, is it possible that this is an idiom or an expression? In the way, in this case, think about it. You know, you open up the fridge and you look in the fridge. You've probably done this. You said, there's nothing here. We got to go to the store. We need everything. Now, that pro- what that probably means, I don't think that means that there's no relish, ketchup, or some other substance that you just don't want to eat at that hour of the day in the fridge. It just means you look and you're like, there's nothing here I want. <laughs> we got to go to the store. In the same way we might say, hey, all the school turned out for the homecoming game. You know, when the announcer says that, assuming, you know, you, you generally assume he's shooting. You think he went on and he, and he checked off each individual student? No, it's an expression. When he says all the school turned out for the homecoming gang, he, he probably means a lot of them showed up. It was this great gathering of people that showed up for the game. And, and that doesn't mean that he's not being trustworthy. And so sometimes in the Bible, the word all means a, means a corporate number or a representative number, a large number. But it doesn't have to mean each and every single individual. And that does not take away from the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of Scripture at all. At all. So, so it's a reason to say, well, well, that's a reason to say this view, that's the weakness this view has. It, it, all doesn't necessarily have to mean all. Second interpretive option. A lot of people say, this is probably the more prominent one today, I think. A very large number, if not all, of Jews will be saved at the return of Christ. Jesus Christ is going to return. They think a lot of Jews will be saved. This view looks at Romans 11, 25, and 26 and sees something of a sequence, something of a chronological chain of events. They look and they say, if you, if you look at your Bible open, they say, okay, he says, Israel has experienced a full hardening in part until, full hardening in parts. So they say, okay, that's where we're at now. Israel has experienced this full hardening in part. What? Until, until, until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And so they say, okay, well, when the full number of Gentiles comes in then, then all of Israel will be saved. And so, you know, proponents of this view kind of argue, okay, right now, Israel is partially hardened. While full number of Gentiles will come in, obviously the full number of Gentiles is going to come in before Jesus comes back. Whether that's like half an hour before Jesus comes back or a couple days, who knows? But eventually, you know, the full number of Gentiles will come in. God will remove this hardening. And then a large number of Israelites will be saved prior to the return of Christ. And again, not, you know, not just thinking Israelites in the nation of Israel, like Jews around the world would be how proponents would understand this. Seems to make a lot of sense in a number of ways. And yet this view too has, it, it too has a weakness. Um, and it's going to sound like I'm playing semantics here. There's something that would strengthen it and put it over the edge, which isn't there. I don't want you to be ignorant of a hard, partial hardening has come upon the Gentiles until the full uh, number of Gen- partial hardening has come upon the Jews until the full number of Gentiles comes in. What does he say next? And what does he not say next? If he said, think of what he could say next that would strengthen this view. A partial hardening has come upon the Jews until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and this is what would strengthen it. Then all Israel will be saved. That would make it stronger. Would make it stronger if he said, a partial hardening has come upon the Jews until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And at this time, all Israel will be saved. 
But that's not what he says. And he says, the ESV puts it, I think, even clearer, and in this way, or here, and so. And so all Israel be saved. Or again, the ESV, and in this way. Where you get and so is from the Greek hutas. Hutas has no temporal nature. It's not like a, wor- a word you, you translate chronologically. It has no temporal future sense, no chronological sense. You don't, it, you'd never, you, that's why they don't translate it until or then. What he's saying is, and so, a partial hardening has come upon them until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Or, and so, so looking back, so based on that, all Israel will be saved. I know, it's, it's confusing. It confuses me, and I know Greek. Um, so that, that one's not, that one's got a weakness. Third view kind of follows from this. says that this is the way Jews throughout history will be saved. All the Jews that are ever going to be saved, they're going to be saved according to this way. So it's, so take it a step further. It says, wow, okay, there's this partial hardening until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So, hey, every Jew that's ever going to be saved is going to be saved amidst this reality that God is actively saving Jews while the majority of them have this partial hardening, whatever that is. And that's the way every Jew throughout history who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, that's the way they're going to be saved. View seems, seems to make some sense. Has, has a few weaknesses. Makes some sense. Um, the weakness of, of, of that view, if there is one, is perhaps that, you know, when you look in the Bible, you want to look at the text, and you want to look at every text within its context. Now, in, in Romans 9, 6, again, Paul makes this distinction between Israel and Israel. Again, he says, not all Israel... So sometimes, you know, he says, when Paul says the word Israel, he doesn't mean every single Jew. Sometimes when Paul says the word Israel, he means only the Jews that are going to be saved. And sometimes Paul means every Jew, ethnically. And sometimes it's really clear when he makes this distinction, sometimes it's not, which kind of becomes the problem for you and for I. And so in verse 25, I think it's, it seems like he's talking about the entire ethnic nation of Israel. And yet in verse 26, this view says, no, he's just talking all Israel will be saved. All the Jews that are going to be saved will be saved. That's kind of the weakness. In one verse to go from one definition of the word to another definition of the word, that seems hard. That's the weakness of that view. Fourth, final view. We're in the home stretch. The Israel Paul is talking about is the Jews and the Gentiles together who are saved. And again, this view tries to do the same thing that we should all do when we study Scripture. We should say, let me put this text in its context, in the whole argument of the book. What has Paul been doing in the book of Romans? Think about, step back and remember how Romans started. You Gentiles are full of sin and need to be saved. You Jews are full of sin and need to be saved. And and as Paul walks through Romans, he makes this case, uh, you know, of bringing the two people together and say, Jews and Gentiles each stand guilty before God and need to be saved. And what? Together they each can be saved through Jesus Christ. What did you see in the text last week? He used this analogy of, you know, kind of the olive branches and the olive shoots and said, the Jews and the Gentiles have been, you know, they've been, or the Gentiles have been grafted in with the Jews. God has taken two different people and he's made them one. He's made the one people of God. Having the same problem with sin, 
saved in the same way. They are not two different peoples of God. There are one people of God. And, and so, so, so this view would say, hey, Paul's overall argument in Romans is that you know, Israel is, is the combination of all of those who are saved. And actually, in Galatians chapter 6, 6.16, Paul uses this weird phrase. He calls it the Israel of God. And in Galatians 6.16, if you look at it later, he says the Israel of God is what? The Israel of God is Jews and Gentiles who have each been saved and been become one people through the death of and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this view says, hey, when he says all Israel will be saved, he just means this is, this is what the life is going to be like while every person that's saved is going to be saved. I think that view has some merits. Um, but I, and if I had to hang my hat, I would probably hang my hat on that view. But I, I'd really rather not avoid hanging my hat right now. Um, but that's the thing, you know, we come upon things in Scripture. And here's one of the, here's one of the takeaways. And we're going to talk about some more in a minute when we hit application. We come upon things in Scripture, and it's so easy. You know, I did this in math my whole life. This is hard. Oh, I don't care. This is hard. I don't want to do it. This is difficult to under... People disagree about this, so I guess I shouldn't weigh in. People sometimes think that way politically. I remember, like, a a good friend of mine, we were talking before the... Oh, for election. I was asking if he was going to vote, and he was like, I don't really feel educated enough to vote right now, so I'm not going to. I'm like, well, why don't you read a little bit? Like, the, in our world, the information is out there. But, but the, and he's like, well, you know, the fact that there can be a few perspectives, I'm just really not going to involve myself. And sometimes we do that in everything. We see something that's difficult, or we see something that people disagree about, and we say, well, I guess I can excuse myself. But this is the, this is the revealed Word of God. And even though our theology may not be 100% perfect, God's going to hold us accountable for it. <laughs> for what we live, what we believe, and and the beliefs that we then live on one day. And so we want to agonize over it. And so hopefully in two years, I'll sit here and tell you I figured it out. Um, Maybe you'll beat me to it. Let's go back to what Paul's initial point is. What's the reason that Paul brings this up? Let's go from the dense to the clear. Quote, lest you be, well, I'm reading from the ESV. I do not want you to be conceited. I do not want you to be conceited. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you will not be conceited. Let's look at two ideas then. Paul's teaching us that doctrine is for life. Theology is for life. We live in what many have called a post-doctrinal or anti-doctrinal age. We don't want to know theology. We don't want to talk about theology. We don't understand theology. We don't think theology is important. And this is a shift. You know, some of you that, um, you know, a little bit older than me, you can, you can, you could give firsthand testimony. You talk to people that were, you know, 60 years ago about why they would choose one church and not another church. And almost universally, the testimony I hear is it was over theology. We went to this church because they practiced you know, believer's baptism. We didn't go to this church because they practiced believer's baptism. We went to this church because of who they said a pastor was. We didn't go to this church because of who they said a pastor was. Go on and on and on. People chose churches based on doctrine. Today, almost universally, when I talk to someone about why they chose a church or left a church, it has nothing to do with theology. 
It has to do with the music. It has to do with the cleanliness of the Sunday school program. It has to do with whether the senior pastor is engaging and funny. I've lost that one. These are the things you talked about. And these are not unimportant things. These are not unimportant things. But they're certainly not the most important thing. And, and the reflection of the fact that we, we are a doctrinally ignorant and apathetic society, I think, overall, where we don't think it really matters that much. I've heard pastors articulate this view subliminally. So, yeah, maybe one, one too many M's. Uh, past, you know, I, I've seen it more than once. The doctrine of the Trinity is often the one that gets picked on the most. I've heard pastors get up there and they say something like, well, you know, the, the doctrine of the Trinity means that there's one God existing eternally in three persons. And this is how they then segue. They say, and I don't know what that means. And then they move on. I've heard pastors, guys who paid for this for a living, say that more than once. And there's an element of humility and stupidity in the statement. Because on the one hand, yes, we look at the doctrine like the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the, the deity of Christ. You know, we look at the doctrine of the Trinity and we say, that is so amazing. And, and God is so big and God is so different and God is so mighty. And I don't really understand the fullness of that. And that's good. Because if we had God all figured out, who would really be God? If we, could, if we could kind of draw God in a Venn diagram, who would be God? And so there's always an element of mystery. And yet, God reveals enough for us to come to some powerful, life-altering conclusions about Him and about how we are to live. Because doctrine is for life. So, you know, in the example of the Trinity, I always say, yeah, this whole idea of one God existing eternally in three persons, yes, it baffles us. But it tells us something about the character of God. It makes sense of other parts of Scripture that otherwise are remarkably confusing. You know, for example, what does the Bible say about God? It says God is love, right? Well, how was God really love before Genesis 1-1 if it was just God? Because love requires an object, you, know, you, you can't love, you, know, you love someone. There's the, love, you know, there's the lover, the person they love, and the love that flows between. Something of a trinity, some have said. Um, where, how did God, how was God love if, 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 if the trinity wasn't true? But, how? Because God, the Father, loved God the Son. And God the Son loved God the Father. And God the Holy Spirit loved the Father and the Son. The trinity exists in community. And so, so we know enough about the doctrine of the Trinity to further understand the character of God. We know enough about the doctrine of the Trinity to understand how God wants us to live. What, what does God say to us? He says in Hebrews 10, Do not give up the habit of meeting together. Continue to meet together. Well, we are image bearers of God. We are made to reflect God's image in the world. There's some, again, mysterious sense in which we reflect God. That's one way we reflect God. God made, was, God exists in community. We are made to exist in community. So, so the doctrine of the Trinity is confusing, and yet there's so many practical things that we can, we can come right off of it. Doctrine is not for caffeine-induced late-night conversations or nerds. Doctrine is for life. It's for life. Now, Paul says here, I want you to understand this mystery. 
I want you to understand this mystery. Mystery is a technical term in the scriptures that, that actually, again, sometimes has a few different meanings. Oftentimes, mystery means difficult concept. <laughs> I want you to understand this difficult concept that you probably wouldn't have figured out on your own. He uses it in Ephesians 5, right? In Ephesians 5, he goes through and says, Husbands, this is how you're to relate to your wives. Wives, this is how you're to relate to your husbands. And then he says it after the end of it, hey, I want you to understand this mystery that that is how God is with his church. And we're like, well, that's, that's, I never would have thought of that. And that's difficult, but, but it has an application. Doctrine is for life. You know, sometimes we talk about theology and people's eyes start glazing over. And we think, well, I'm not trained for this. And it's interesting, remember, in the, in, the, in the beginning, Paul wrote this to a, the church at Rome. He didn't write this book to the pastor at Rome. He didn't write this book to the seminary professor at Rome. He wrote this book to the church at Rome. God gives every believer his word. And so this is not just for, for people that you know, want to geek out and get a grad degree. This is for all of us. Doctrine is for each and every one of us. For every fall of Christ. This particular doctrine is meant to induce humility. It's meant to induce humility. So that you may not be conceited. So that you may not be, again, wise in your own sight. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be proud, arrogant, and conceited. And, and it's got an interesting, you know, first century background. First century was no different than, the, than much of the rest of history. There is a large degree of anti-Semitism in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. In the first century, several times the Jews get thrown out of Rome. I mean, imagine that. You need to leave. Leave or die. Several times. Eventually, you know, they're, they're let back in a couple times through some course of events. They, they get thrown out of their city. When Jews in the first century told the Roman government, we really don't want to serve in the military... You know what dodging the draft looked like? It was, okay, well, we're not going to kill you this time. But, you know, they found this really unhabitable place in the Mediterranean world. And they said, go there. The kind of place that, like, you're not going to live very long. We won't execute you, but go live out a couple of years, and then you'll just die on your own. The Jews were not thought well of. And so, knowing that, think, here Paul's writing to this church of Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome... And these Gentiles are thinking, well, I guess we're the people of God now. God, God, God has moved beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel. They live in a culture surrounded by anti-Semitism. Would it be unthinkable that they would take that anti-Semitism into their faith and find yet another reason to hate Jews? In the way that sinful people in our generation have looked at Jews and called them Christ-killers, and persecuted them because of what they did or what their ancestors did to Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's happened. And Paul wants none of it here. He wants none of it. He builds upon what we've been noting the last six weeks. Don't you dare think God is done entirely with the Jews. Don't you dare think God is done with the Jews.
He still has plans, regardless of how he's saving them. Again, note that. Regardless of whether it's an end-time mass revival or whether it's the salvation of some kind of now throughout time, God is still saving them. Jesus is still saving them. Don't you dare think God is done with the Jews and think that you are better than they are. This doctrine is for humility. The amazing thing about pride is we can become prideful about anything. You can put four people in the room and watch how they're proud and arrogant over opposite things. You know, we can find some people that we can become prideful. You know, the person who says, I work with my hands. And there's some people that you can become arrogant. They're thinking, you know, you work with your hands and you work hard and you're better than that person's got the soft, cushy job. There are some people that can become arrogant, you know, who sit and you sit behind a desk and you wear a shirt and a tie and you think you are better. You become wise in your own sight over those who work a manual labor job. We can become arrogant in our background. We can become arrogant saying, hey, I grew up on the tough streets of an inner city and I had it hard and my dad wasn't around and I heard shootings at night. I'm a lot, I'm better than you. And we can have other people that become proud in the fact that they grew up on Greenfield Hill. We can, we can become proud in our doctrinal knowledge and think that we're better and more intelligent than people that don't know as much as we do. And we can become proud and arrogant in our doctrinal humility. Well, I don't think any of us can really know. And we can become proud in that. We can be, become proud in anything and everything. There's nothing under the sun that the twisted, sinful human heart cannot develop into arrogance and judgmentalism. And Paul introduces this doctrine to say, don't you dare become conceited in your salvation. Don't you dare. You're so apt to become arrogant about so many things. Don't you dare become arrogant about why you are saved. Don't you dare think you're saved because you are more holy than the Jews. Don't you dare think you're saved because you're more righteous than the Jews. Don't you dare think you are saved by your good works. Be humble in your salvation. You were saved by grace. That's the backdrop. And the only posture for someone who's saved by grace is humility. It's humility. You know, are you, the, are you the publican that looks up to God and says, God, I thank you that you've accepted me and that I'm not like him. Are you the man that beats his breast and says, God, why did you save me? Why did you save me? Thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you that while I was still in my sins, Christ Jesus, you died for me. It's humility. The deliverer will come from Zion. It says he will banish ungodliness and he will t- remember his covenant. He will take away their sins. This is the humility inducing wonder of the gospel. That the living God would say, though in your, sin, your sins make you red like scarlet. Not, oh, I'm basically a good person or, you know, I've got a, you know, I'm, I'm good and bad. No. He says, you are like scarlet. He says, I will make you white as snow. Though you are red like crimson, come to me, I will make you white as wool. That is the message of the gospel that we are worse off than any of us wants to imagine. And we are more loved 
than any of us would dare to believe. And that must produce humility. Right, uh, astound yourself with this thought. Right now around the world today, probably since we came, you came and sat down this morning, someone has been saved through this gospel. I guarantee you, right now around the world in the last 70 minutes, someone has put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because the Deliverer has come. He's come from Zion, and he is saving people this moment. Is he going to save one of you here this morning? Maybe today is the day where you say, Jesus, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Thank you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Give me life. The full life that only you can. I hope so. Let's pray. Gracious God and King, I pray that you would grow us deep in our salvation, give us life, give us hope, give us joy in our salvation. I pray indeed, God, that right now you would be saving someone in this world, in this county, in this town, through the gospel today. Father God, I pray that you would help us to be good students of Scripture. And I pray, Lord God, that... um, we would, not, we would not bring our presuppositions to your word, but that we would accept your word as it is, and that we would humble ourselves before your revelation, that you'd give us wisdom and insight and understanding to understand your word, even as you explained to, to the, the 12 disciples on the side what the parables meant. I pray, God, that you would fully explain your clear word to us, that we might know you and love you more. We ask so in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.